Father, we come and we have come not to hear a man speak, but rather help us to realize that you in your word by your spirit, you still speak. And so we look to you and we turn to you to ask for your help. That you might by your spirit grant that understanding, that clarity of who your son really is and what he came to do. And that you enable many of us to place our faith in him as the Christ, your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. So the first episode is uh, Jesus at a wedding. And this is probably the most famous of all weddings because even at the last wedding I was at, which I know some of you were at, the speaker made reference to it, right? Oh, yes, you know, uh, we know that weddings are accepted by God because Jesus himself was at this wedding, you know, so weddings are approved by God. But isn't it strange to you that nobody knows who the bride and groom are. I mean, at this, at this most famous, most talked about wedding, nobody knows who the bride and groom are because what's significant about this wedding is not the bride and groom. It's about what Jesus has done there. And John, in verse 11, summarizes the significant, that hap- significant thing that happened at that wedding. So verse 11 tells us what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, that was what was significant. That at this wedding, because of what Jesus did in turning of water to wine, Jesus pulled back the curtain. Okay, he, he, he revealed something of who he really is. Now, okay, in John's Gospel, that's what it means for Jesus, for God to show His glory. Okay, it simply means that the people in beholding this glory come to understand a little bit more who God really is, who Jesus really is. And so, through this sign, Jesus revealed and His disciples came to see more clearly who He really is and they believed in Him. So, um, we need to understand something about weddings in the first century. Like, I mean, even in our day and age, right, weddings are already a big deal, right? I was just talking with uh, Tan Yang during refreshment time, and then, you know, yeah, the planning for the wedding, and how he's so thankful to Sasha for doing most of the thing. I mean, I, I promise you, I promise you that uh, most of you, if you get married and you have a wedding, that will be the biggest party you'll ever throw. I mean... In your life, you'll never throw a more expensive or a party that takes so much planning ever again. I mean, it will be the biggest party you'll ever throw. And so what was a big deal for us, in the first century, it was even a bigger deal. And weddings then would last a few days. I mean, like even now, just one day, and you're already a bit what, right? But then it would last a few days. And it was the groom's responsibility to provide the wine. And we have evidence uh, that tells us this was such an important responsibility that if he didn't provide enough wine, <clears throat> the bride's relatives actually had enough cause to sue him. Because, you know, the, the, the wedding didn't last long enough and you you responsible to provide wine, you didn't provide enough. They could bring him to court for not having enough wine. And so you can appreciate here when Mary 
comes to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. Right? She tells Jesus, they have no more wine. I mean, for us, no more wine, drink beer, lah, right? You know, but, <laughs> but for them, <laughs> for them, it was something that was close to a crisis. And the key to understanding this whole episode is Jesus' reply in verse 4. And, and I mean, you look at what he says in verse 4. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like a, a bit of a reprimand. That sounds like a bit of a rebuke to his mother. Right? And that's why he says woman. He doesn't say mother. Now, woman there is not really a rude term. It's more like saying ma'am. So he doesn't call her mother. He calls her, he says, ma'am, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. But then the strange thing is, after that, he goes and performs the miracle that would provide the, the shortage of wine. I mean, you know, uh, alleviate the shortage of wine. And so, I mean, for many years, I mean, you, you read this and then you're thinking, okay, I mean, is Jesus going, okay, you know, my time has not yet come. And then the mother, you know, like that. And then he, okay, okay, you know, I'll do what you say. I mean, okay, is that what's going on? Okay, no, obviously, obviously not, because Jesus is not, you know, he's perfect. He's not so wishy-washy like us. And so the, the clue and the key to understanding this passage really is in what he says in verse 4. And I think we can understand when Mary comes and she says, the wine has run out. She's talking about physically, right? At this wedding, physically, the wine has gone out. They're running out of wine. No, it's gone. But when she says that to Jesus, like many times in this gospel, what the person is referring to physically, Jesus is already thinking spiritual. So he's thinking spiritually, the wine, the wine has run out. Now he's thinking about how on earth, how the, the joys and the fulfillments of this life will run out. There's, there's, there's nothing on this earth that would satisfy you and fill your heart with gladness forever. There will come a time, no matter how hard you chase, what you chase, there will come the time when the wine will run out if what you're looking for is on this earth. And Jesus is thinking ahead to the time when, like what we read in Amos chapter 9, that time when God brings in His kingdom, when He makes everything right. And, and, and that common image that's associated with that, as we saw in Amos 9, is of wine, new wine, and, and wine in abundance, dripping down the mountains. And so, when Jesus hears, ah, they have no more wine, he's thinking spiritually. Yes, yes, this earth, the people here, if all they chase is, is what's on earth, worldly things, of course the wine will run out, but, but he knows the time will come when he will bring in new wine that will last forever, that will satisfy God's people forever. He's thinking about that time. And that's why he says, my time, my hour has not yet come. See, that's, that's, that's really uh, the evidence to show us his thinking about that time. Now, what is this hour that Jesus is referring to? Okay, so like a really good writer, John introduces it here. But as the chapters go by, he will 
speak about it, refer to it again and again until we get this comprehensive picture. So uh, in chapter 7, chapter 8, again it will be said, his hour had not yet come. But when you come to chapter 12, <clears throat> you can uh, turn there with me if you want. Uh, chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come. See, So before chapter 7, chapter 8, the hour has not yet come. But when we reach chapter 12, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what will his glory involve? Verse 24 tells us, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then look again to uh, chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's very clear, the hour for Jesus is the hour of his death and subsequent glorification, You know, going back to the Father. So back in chapter 2, when Jesus, you know, because of Mary's statement, they have no more wine, he's thinking spiritually, yes, yes, this world, the people here, they will run out of wine. There's nothing here that will truly satisfy them, that will truly fill them with their gladness. I am the one who will bring in that new wine. I am the one who will bring in the kingdom of God where the hearts of men and women will be truly satisfied and have their, 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 their fullness and fulfillment because of what I do then. That's why he says, my hour has not yet come because it is his death and resurrection that will bring in that great wedding banquet, that, that, that kingdom of God where wine will be in abundance. You see, it did not take, it will not take Jesus' death for him to turn water to wine. It doesn't. It doesn't require his death. I mean, he, I mean, you look at the story, they fill it to the brim and Jesus doesn't even touch it or he doesn't even give a command. He just wills it and it turns into the best wine. See, it does not take his death to do that. But the wine that he's thinking about, of which this wine is a, a pointer forward to, that wine of the kingdom of God, that will take his death. Because in order for God's people to be cleansed and purified, that they are pure enough to be part of that kingdom, that will require his death, his payment of our sin, and the penalty of God's wrath on our behalf, that will take his death to accomplish. And just like at the wedding, it was the groom that would provide the wine. So Jesus, I think, is using the image of how as the bridegroom, he will be the one that will provide the wine at the, the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Which is another image uh, used to talk about the kingdom of God. And how it is because of his death on his people's behalf that, that the bride will be made ready. You see, there are, there are so many people, right? Especially, you know, this is a service with a lot of young people. I mean, there are so many young people. They grow up, you know, they go to Sunday school and 
most of the time is because their parents say they have to go. And, 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 and the version of Christianity that they come away with is, you know, a lot of do's and don'ts. You know, you must do this, don't do this. And it's, you know, keep your nose clean. You know, don't, don't, don't be like those other people. And then you can enter the kingdom of God. And so, you know, they, 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 they see Jesus as, yeah, you know, he's this king and I'm this subject and I must, I must relate to. Or, you know, he's this shepherd and, uh, I'm the sheep that, I, that he's keep prodding me in the right direction. But here is another image. Because if he's the bridegroom that's providing all the wine for this wedding, it means his people are the bride. I mean, he, he's using an image <clears throat> of great closeness and intimacy and love. And so people who reject Christianity, reject Jesus because they think, you know, it's, it's, uh, his, Jesus is the ultimate party pooper. And I, I want to enjoy life. And so if, if I, I, I can't enjoy life if I'm being constrained by all his rules. And, no, no, then you're getting the wrong picture because Jesus is actually the ultimate life of the party. Because what he's promising is, is, is wine, is that true gladness that, that nothing on earth can ever give you. He is all about joy. He is all about closeness and intimacy and fulfillment. You are that bride, beautifully prepared, clothed not in the righteousness of your own deeds, but clothed in His righteousness. And, and He's pointing ahead to that time when because of His death, He will be able to prepare all that's needed for that great feast, the greatest party ever. So, one of the mistakes that um, we find common in our day and age are false teachers teaching that this abundance, this prosperity, this fulfillment, you can have it now. Okay, no, Jesus is, is clear. It's, it's at the end, right? I mean, Amos, in that day, it's that day when, when, when the kingdom of God is fully consummated. Right, when Jesus returns, I mean, it's, it's talking about a future time. But false teachers today will make promises that God is saying, oh, here, you know, it's talking about our prosperity and abundance, it's health and it's wealth now. Okay, so you need to be clear, that is false teaching, because never does it promise it here. Firstly, they make the promises small and they get the timing wrong. It's actually later, and it's actually bigger than you ever think. Okay, so the yeah. So um, recently, I talked with uh, neighbors of ours, and for all their life as a Christian, they went to one of these churches. Okay, so all they knew for fourteen years was this was was a uh, uh, corruption of this teaching. You know, the, the 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 preacher promising them health and wealth now. But what happened to this couple was that. Um, the husband lost his job, and in fact now he's still looking for a job. And the wife, uh, uh, some time ago, went for a routine operation uh, in order to, you know, like prepare her womb so that they could have a second child. But when they opened her up, they discovered she had cancer. And so she said to me, you know, what was a one-hour operation turned into six because they had to remove 
every organ that was not vital. Okay? So you, you know, she first she went into it thinking, okay, it's just a routine. Then she wakes up and then she's, she's being told, okay, all non-vital organs have been removed because you have cancer. And then, and she's this petite looking lady. I mean, when we bump into her in the lift, you know, Maria, like, yeah, so petite, you know, so quiet. But when she was sharing her testimony, she was just going at it. She said when she woke up, she said, somebody is lying to me. Because, because I have faith in this God. <laughs> These things are not supposed to happen to me. And so she was telling us about how, you know, all these 14 years, I mean, their leaders in this church, they would go to hospitals and they would pray for people. And then some people that they pray for would not be healed and would die. And so they would ask the pastor, hey, what happened? And then the explanation would be, oh, you know, this person did not have enough faith. That's why, okay, died. That's why, you know, couldn't claim the blessing of, of health. And so she told me, she told us, she went to talk to one of the, the, the pastors, and the pastor insinuated that all this was happening to her because she did not have enough faith. And she said, you shut up. You talk about those other people, not enough faith. That's fine. I, I don't know their hearts. But me, I know, I know that I'm fully committed to this God. I know that I have faith. So you shut up. And she said she was <clears throat> at the brink of just throwing all this away. God, just forget about God. But in God's kindness, God led her and the husband back to the word. Because you see, in those churches, they just hear and they believe everything that the person says. They don't really read this for themselves. So they, they, they started reading this for themselves. And the Lord led them to a true understanding of who He is, the promises He actually makes. And so when I was talking with them, it was already the second operation she's having because she had a relapse. And she had just been uh, out two days out of hospital, you know, she's holding it, wobbling along, and her husband is still jobless. But as she's sharing these things, I mean, honestly, I can see that joy. That joy of, yes, you know, you know, uh, God led us through this, but now he's, he's, he's really shown us who He really is. He's led us to the truth. I mean, now we see Jesus more clearly, and, and, and their lives are full of joy because there's a hope not in the wine being sufficient on this earth. But they've, they've, they've looked at this and they've seen that it is in the future that the wine will be abundant then and their hope is on that. So I don't know what it does for you because, I mean, you're hearing this secondhand from me. You're not, you know, seeing um, them up close. But for me... I mean, to be honest, I, I was ashamed. Because here they're going through this big crisis and, and there is that evident joy, evident hope. And I, I'm, I'm ashamed because I, when I go through smaller crises, smaller trials, and so easily my joy is, is disrupted, my focus on Jesus is disrupted. And so, I mean, and, and I think that's because I'm focused on the the wine that this world has to offer, rather than in the wine that Jesus will provide in the future, the one that will never run out, the new wine that is greater and better than anything uh, this world has to offer. 
the next story that John records for us, I mean, could not present a more different side of Jesus, right? So here he's at this wedding, and he, wow, you know, he keeps the the party going by providing wine. And the second story, we see here Jesus is driving out animals, clearing the temple. And and and, and again, I say. Some people like to come and then they say, oh no, I prefer this version. Oh, I prefer this version. No, 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 you gotta take, you gotta take it all as it is. Because John is providing a comprehensive picture of this Jesus. Is he, is he meek and mild and generous? Yes. Is he gonna judge? Is he angry, righteously? Yes. Because this Jesus is perfect. And so John is presenting Another side of this perfect Jesus. And so they make a trip to the temple because it's Passover. And Jesus sees all these animals there, right? And you need to understand why the animals are there. It's because pilgrims would come from all over to go to Jerusalem during a Passover to offer a sacrifice. So it would be really, really difficult for them to, you know, pull this goat along, you know, for, for, you know, traveling 10 days. And then halfway through the journey, the goat might get injured and then, ah, it's no longer perfect. It's already blemished, so you can't sacrifice the goat. So it would make a lot more sense, it would be a lot easier if they could buy the animal in Jerusalem itself. And it used to be that the stalls, the Pasamalam, was set up not in the temple, but on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So it wasn't in the temple itself. But somehow in Jesus' time, it was all set up in the temple complex. And actually, it was in the court of Gentiles. So that if we were God-fearers in those times, the, the, the furthest into the temple we can step is the court of Gentiles. And we will have all these animals making noises, all these you know, marketplace sounds, as we're trying to pray and worship God. Okay, so that's why Jesus is angry, because all these stalls are there. And so what he does is he makes a whip out of cords, and you've got to try and picture this in your mind, right? I mean, don't sanitize it. Because Jesus is really, really angry. I mean, it would take a lot of energy and actually whipping to drive animals away. I mean, you can't just go to the store owner, take a piece of paper and say, okay, I give you notice. Okay, clear this in 10 minutes and then just put it on the table. Well, nothing's going to happen. And you can't just go, shoo. Shoo, you know, you, you can't go, um, uh, you know, hey, you're all here disturbing the other people. I, I think it's not right, you know. Maybe, can you see my point of view? I mean, he doesn't do any of this. He just comes and he drives them out. Right? He overturns the tables of the money changers. I mean, these are, these are tables that, I mean, the money changers have chosen to be as solid as possible so that the coins will not be overturned. And so it, it takes considerable effort and energy for Jesus to do all of this that's recorded for us here. And at the end of it, he's perspiring. He's panting. I mean, his hair is probably out of place. And in witnessing all this, his disciples say, they remembered it was written in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now Psalm 69 is a psalm written by David. And David in that psalm is talking about how because he's zealous for God's name, he's being persecuted by uh, God's enemies. 
And so the disciples see in the picture of David pointing ahead to great David's greater son who, who has this zeal for God's name, for God's house. Now in Psalm 69, David says, zeal for your house consumes me, like present tense. But when John records it here, he says, zeal for your house will consume me, making it future tense. Because it is indeed that Jesus in coming and clashing with the religious authorities that will get him sentenced and crucified at the end of the day. Now there's another uh, Old Testament passage I need to draw your attention to. And this one is easy to find, so I'll get you to turn to it. It's the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3. Okay, so just before Matthew. So Malachi 3 verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So who is it that comes? It is the Lord, the Lord himself that will come to the temple. It is a messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And so there's this prophecy of the Lord, someone coming who will purify the temple, purify the offerings made by God's people. And see, I think that's the reason why these Jewish leaders, when they see Jesus doing this, I mean, that they don't arrest him. And, they, they, and when they come to him, they don't go, Hey, what, what do you think you're doing? I mean, they don't do that because they know they're expecting someone who will come, who will purify the temple. And so instead, they come to him and they say, What authority do you have to do this? Are, are you really the one prophesied in Malachi 3? Right, we, we, we know there will be someone who will come, you know, the Lord will come and he will do this cleansing. But, but what sign can you prove, can you show us to prove that you are that one, that you have this authority to do this? And so Jesus' reply is in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So he says temple and dating physical temple. And so for them, I mean, you can imagine their, their disbelief. right? At this stage, it has taken 46 years. And it's still not even completed because uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us that the temple, you know, all of it was only truly completed in about AD 60. So at that time, it was still under construction. And so they are incredulous. But John tells us, after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, 
they recalled these words and they realized he was talking about his body. Because what was the temple? The temple was the place where, as God's people, you had to come. I mean, you couldn't do this offering of sacrifice anywhere you chose. You had to come to the temple because the temple symbolized the presence of God. You had to go there and you had to offer your sacrifice in a certain way because the temple was the place where God would meet with man. I mean, that was the only legitimate place. And Jesus is saying, yeah, this this, this building, all of it is just a model. It is pointing ahead to the true meeting place of God and man. Not, not this building, not, not how grand it is, I don't care. This is just a model for my body. It is in Him where the true meeting place between God and man will take place. And so, John gives us this evidence so that we can hear, okay, this Jesus is the one who will bring in the kingdom of God. He is the one who will supply that new wine. He he is the one who is the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, the the one that we must go to in order to meet with God. And and this, this has taken place because Mark's gospel tells us after Jesus was crucified, the, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple that was torn in two. Because now people can enter in. Those who have faith in Jesus can actually have access to God in the true temple, which is Jesus. And so John is telling us all this so that as he says in his purpose statement, that we can consider the evidence and have faith in Christ. Because you see, the the pitfall, the temptation for many of us as we make this Christian journey is that it is easy to place our faith and confidence in something other than Jesus. Because I mean, I mean, let me just ask you, if you if for the last six months, okay, every day without fail, you have you know woken up 5:30. You've had your quiet time, you've, 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 you've had a good time in prayer, and every week you manage to share the gospel with one other person. I mean, if the last six months was like that for you, you would be feeling pretty good about yourself. I know I would. But see, that's the danger, you see, because then we would be tempted to place faith on the things I've done. Whereas John is saying, no, 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 no. You won't have life. In His name, you must place your faith in Him. And I tell you, the line is sometimes so blur, so fine. Sometimes we place faith in our faith. But no, even that's not enough. you got to place your faith in Him. So look at the evidence of what John is presenting of who Jesus is. I mean, read that for yourself. Come back to this passage. Just look at it for yourself. And pray that God will grant you faith in Him, that you may see for yourself clearly that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Now I want to end by reading a passage from Revelation 21, which is also written by John. And uh, John brings these two ideas that we've seen in, in this chapter wonderfully together. In John 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. May God help us to believe His word. Amen.